Welcome to Fine Tuning with Drew Taylor, your one-stop shop when it comes to animation news and commentary. I'm Drew's co-host, entertainment writer Jim Hill, and he and I are recording the show on February, October 30th, 2020. And Drew, it's our big 100th episode. I'm, I'm shocked we made it this far, Jim, to be honest. Yeah, get all of the infighting, the backbiting, you yes, know, the, yes. oh, you don't want to know what goes on behind the scenes at this show, folks. <laughs> anyway, no, I, I have so enjoyed my time hanging out with you online, but it's just bizarre that we've done 100 of them so far. Yeah. All right. We're going to do a teeny tiny itty bitty news segment up front here because we've got a killer treat for you for our 100th episode. So news portion of this podcast is sponsored by Storybook Destination, trusted travel partner of fine tuning. For a worry-free travel experience, please book online at storybookdestinations.com. Okay, so we jump into it. Over the Moon just debuted on Netflix last week, but also opened theatrically in China, which didn't quite go according to plan. Yeah, it did not did not do very well in China. So I think that's, you know, this is the second big kind of like Chinese co-production that they thought was going to be big in China after Mulan. After Mulan. Yeah, yeah. did not happen. Mm-hmm. So maybe we stop catering all of our movies to China? Maybe? I don't know. That's just an idea of mine, Jim. How did Everest do, the DreamWorks Animation Pearl collaborate? I don't think it did super well, but I can look mm-hmm. that up, Jim. Keep okay. vamping. You you finally okay. saw Over the Moon, right? I did. I did. And I really kind of enjoyed it. It's always so dangerous to try to gauge a film on a trailer because the opening, the, the first third of this thing is very, very grounded and establishing a life of a, a young girl in China, in modern day China. And how her dad's about to remarry and the stresses it puts on the family and that sort of thing. So then when the second act does what it does, when again, they go to the moon and it suddenly becomes this crazy colored, there was so much of it where I'm going like, okay, well, that kind of reminds me of Angry Birds and that kind of reminds me of Despicable Me. and that. But it's, it's still an original film. I loved the kind of... Wizard of Oz aspect, you know, for example, Chin had a frog and then we had the giant flying frogs. Right, right. She has a bunny and there's a there's a jade rabbit and yeah. And I love the lion dogs. Oh yeah. They're in the 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 human world part of the wind, the, the guardians on the bridge. I mean, I think overall I really did enjoy it. So, did you find anything out about Everest or all I can see right now is that it made more money overseas than it did here. DreamWorks Oriental, now Pearl Studios, handled it overseas, mm-hmm. but uh, who handled uh, Over the Moon as well. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. Uh, and also the movie is called Abominable Jim. Everest was the working title, so we have to. Hey, you guys see, this is <laughs> one of the reasons I enjoy with Drew, working with Drew. You're gonna <laughs> remember that the stupid thing you said. Let me correct you. <laughs> So, yeah, so Hong Kong, it made 604,000. That doesn't seem like a great number. China, it made 16 million, which is, again, Mm -hmm. not great. But if you talk with folks with Netflix, they seem very happy. Oh, this is the abominable number. Sorry. But, yeah, I don't don't have over the moon numbers yet. Oh, well, but, um, you know, the the downloads, the the press it got, they, they seem very happy with it. We should also mention, because you and I both love the trailer, for Max Keen's project for yes. uh, Netflix. Yes. The Truck Show. Yes. Uh, trash Truck. Trash Truck. Yeah. Max Keen is uh, Glenn Keen's son, and Glenn Keen is the son of Bill Keen, the guy who did, you know, the family circus. So, whole artistic family here, and, and Glenn... And Max worked together on, I want to say Duo, the, the little film they did there, but this is kind of Max's breakout project, though Glenn is involved? Yes, he is involved. Uh, he Well, he voices the grandfather and the truck. Mm-hmm. So we've got that going on, and I'm sure he helped, you know, with designs mm-hmm. and stuff, because this is one of the more beautiful-looking children's shows oh. I've ever seen. Absolutely. And not to take away from Over the Moon, I mean, again, there's whole scenes out of this that are, are just startlingly beautiful. And it has a nice message. And it, seriously, if you haven't seen it, head over to Netflix and check it out. And But likewise, keep an eye out for Trash Truck. It is aimed at a younger audience, but it still looks great. It still has a great vibe to it. And I feel bad saying this after 
being so enthusiastic about the Animaniacs reboot, which is coming to HBO this month. It's coming to it's coming to Hulu in Hulu in November. Right. Yes, in November. <laughs> yeah. You know, Hulu, uh, Hulu in November. Yeah. Okay, what do we make of the announcement of the Tiny Toons revival? Tiny Tiny Toons Luniversity. Um, yeah. Yeah. I don't know. I mean. I loved Tiny Toons. I liked Tiny Toons. I look at Tiny Toons as kind of the training wheel show that got us to Animaniacs, or, or for, yeah, for that for matter, sure. got us to Freakazoid. So, you know, I'm, I'm grateful. I don't know if you ever saw the direct-to-video movie they made, the, the Summer Vacation. Yeah, I love uh, it. That was great. That was killer. But it was like they did that after they did the series, and they, they sort of— they had a really good sense of what the characters were and what they could do with them. And I'm a little hesitant about this one. But on the other hand, I just recently started watching the Looney Tunes show. The Bugs Bunny Daffy Duck is kind of a sitcom reboot. And I was surprised at how strong the writing was on that. Did you ever catch it? No. Wh- when was that from? This was, I want to say, just within the past 10 years, 2012 to 2013, but it has a really funny original take on Lola Bunny from Space Jam. And in fact, I'm kind of hoping that going forward with the Space Jam follow-up that we have coming out this coming year, right? Yeah, yeah. Ugh. Okay. Um, I, I would be interested to see if they, they bring that version of Lola back. But speaking of new shows, we also have, as part of this announcement, we, we got a new thing from our buddy, Gennady. Yeah, yeah. It's called Unicorn, uh, which mm-hmm. is cool. But this is a different kind of unicorn. It's called Unicorn Warriors Eternal. It's an all-ages show that'll be on Cartoon Network and mm-hmm. uh, HBO Max. And mm-hmm. uh, it looks cool as hell. I mean, they, oh, there's only one piece of concept art, but it seems like it'll be on fairly soon. You, you've been watching Primal, Jim. This is a guy operating at the height of his powers. Oh, my so. God. Speaking of Primal, the last two episodes, geez, they were masterful. Yeah. I think the night terror, the night invader one where, you know, the attacks were all done from first person perspective. Yeah. And, it's like, ah. and then the one previous with the old wizened witch coven of the damned. Yeah. Yeah. Oh no. It, it's just, it, it kind of breaks my heart that this weekend is the very last episode for season one. And in fact, it, it had me concerned from the teaser because it's once again, it's Fang and Spear fighting yet another group of eight people. And the last time this happened, they did that cliffhanger where it looked like Fang wasn't going to make it. Right. And it, and it'd come back in a year and a half, and we'll let you know how that works out. <laughs> so, I, I mean, I know the show's been renewed, so in, in theory, yes. both of them are coming back. Yes. But, man, it's it's so beautifully designed. It's so wonderfully animated. The fact that they do this level of storytelling without the characters saying a word? Right. Wasn't Samurai Jack largely silent? Yeah, it was pretty silent. But okay, this one, so I mean, nothing is like this that he's done. No, I mean, no, no. Yeah. Well, anyway, folks, seriously, if, if you get the chance to catch this, this last episode, because if it's as strong as the second half of the first season has been, this is going to be killer. And speaking of killer... When we get back, oh, do we have a treat for you guys. Drew really set the bar when it came to 100th episodes. I mean, people still talk about what you did (laughs) with the 100th episode of Light the Fuse. Do you want to describe how, oh, she wants to come on and he wants to well, come yeah, on? Well, yeah, I mean, we, we were talking with the, with Christopher McQuarrie, who is the writer-director of, of Rogue Nation, Fallout, and then he's doing 7 and 8. And they were on, mm-hmm. they, you know, had the production shut down. So we were like, can we just talk to you? We tried sort of some other guests, didn't happen. He said, mm-hmm. sure. We get on the phone, on Skype. Or on Zoom, and then I see Simon Pegg wants to enter the room. Haley Atwell wants to enter the room. Lauren Balfe wants to enter the room. And it ended up being this sort of roundtable discussion about the future of Mission Impossible, and it was just a delight. Oh, so no. we did not do that this time, though. I'm sorry to no, tell you. We had no, one white no. guy in a car. I'm sorry, but it's a great guest. All right, so this story basically starts in July of 1991. Pixar Animation Studios drew, it's a three-picture deal initially, right? It's a three-picture deal, yep. 
Okay. And the first picture out of the gate is, of course, the original Toy Story. It arrives in theaters in November of 1995, a huge hit. And, and Pixar's already working on, well, it's called Bugs at this point, but what eventually becomes Bugs Life, right? Yep. But at this time, Toy Story 2 makes a huge amount of money. It's the number three film at the box office that year. So Disney, of course, turns as they, it was their want during this period. It's like, okay, let's do a sequel. And uh, initially, it, it's supposed to be direct-to-video, right? Yeah, it was supposed to be, you know, along the lines of, you know, Lion King 2 and whatever else, Return of Jafar. But mm-hmm. Okay. But Steve Jobs, the entire time that Toy Story is in production, is basically trying to sell the company, right? And right. it's only, I guess... When they start showing that first scene, the toy soldiers bringing the baby monitor downstairs, and everyone talks about how amazing this movie is, that Jobs decides that he doesn't want to sell Pixar, but he now wants to sort of... In fact, don't they issue stock like right after Toy Story arrives in theaters? Yeah, this is why all of those nerds that were originally at Pixar are now multi, multi... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> multi-millionaires because of that stock yes okay but jobs not only makes a healthy profit off of the issue of the stock but he uses his opportunity to renegotiate the deal with disney so february of 1997 there's the announcement that pixar has gone from a three-picture deal with disney now it's a 10-year five-picture deal but it begins with the next film which is a bug's life which arrives in theaters november of 1998 and it's about this same time that Disney gets to take a look at the, the work-in-progress version of Toy Story 2, likes what it sees, and suddenly Toy Story 2 is no longer a direct-to-video release. It's a theatrical release. November of 1999, Toy Story 2 is released to theaters. And do you want to talk about the conversation that Steve Jobs <laughs> and Michael Eisner have at this point? Yeah, well, I mean, there was, a, there was some contention there because Steve is saying that Two are done. We've got three to go. But Eisner is saying that they actually have four more movies to go because sequels don't count. So it also meant that they could make sequels on their own. So we will return to this idea a little later. How the world would be different now if Eisner at that moment had been gracious and gone, you know, you're right. You know, it's, it's a huge hit. We're happy to have it. Let's count this toward the five-picture deal. You know, we'd be in an entirely different world now. Though, at the same time, it's entirely possible that Pixar would be its own studio off on its own at this point. So Steve, he bides his time while Pixar continues to crank out the hits. And so November uh, 2001, we get Monsters, Inc. out, out in theaters, even bigger hit than Toy Story 2. But now, with three pictures left on the five-picture deal, Disney opens negotiations to extend its incredibly successful partnership with Pixar, and Jobs plays hardball. The idea was that Pixar would pay to produce its own films, it would own them outright, and Disney at this point would basically be cut out that i mean it would get what a, a 10 to 15 percent distribution deal yeah i mean it's like it's the lucasfilm deal with fox right that they would yeah that's it exactly that's yeah. it exactly okay and eisner rejects this deal but at the same time he's telling the board of directors don't worry it'll work out what was the story about nemo at that point oh yeah i've heard this that eisner saw an early cut of nemo hmm. and thought that it was going to be awful which Mm. you know a lot of these early cuts are terrible but you Mm. know he thought that once that the movie comes out it's a flop they'll sort of Mm. come and be more generous and and sort of negotiate the contracts a little bit more in in disney's favor but that did not happen did it jim i'm fascinated by that early version of nemo where it was what what, it was bill macy who was voicing the dad and it was the way it was structured stanton had all of these kind of traumatic little cuts uh you know finally you found out what two-thirds of the way through why marlin was the way he was that that was where they got the big scene reveal where the barracuda ate all of the the eggs and that sort of thing yeah thank god he got to do it in john carter all those years later (laughs) the thing that he was warned against he just did in john carter later oh my god you're right holy cow okay So Bill Macy is replaced as Marlin. Albert Brooks comes in, adds some comic energy to the film. They lose the whole post-traumatic flashback thing and put it right at the front of the film. This is also the very first Pixar film that's re- released 
in you know out of the holiday period it's it's not in summer blockbuster season but it's at the very edge what's weird it has the date that now Marvel grabs, you know, is the start of the summer blockbuster yeah. season. It's well, like, that was what? that was actually a Jobs call too, because he wanted the DVDs out for Christmas. That's right. That's yeah. right. Okay. So anyway, Nemo comes out. It's their largest box of hit to date. In fact, doesn't it? It then surpassed Disney's biggest hit at that time, which was yeah. Lion King. Yeah, uh, it was huge. So anyway, we now have two pictures left on the deal. And in fact, what I find fascinating about this moment is this is when. Pixar reaches out to Disney and goes, hey, we got two ideas. One of them is for Toy Story 3, and the other one is for this movie called Cars. And Eisner, knowing that the window was closing on new projects, and also, wasn't it that he had all that info about how many Hot Wheels Mattel sells, that that's why he opted for Cars? Right. Now we get to the big moment. I mean, Eisner has, it's in the pre period just before this that, Save Disney rises up and, you know, and Eisner really gets dinged during this period. And, and, and then Steve Job piles on by breaking off negotiations with Disney in January of 2004. Do you remember that? Or? Yeah, uh, you remember it, Jim, because you, you were a cheerleader. You were a prong in the pitchfork in, of Save Disney. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, the yes, thing is that he was going to other studios too, and nobody was biting on these terms. So yeah, it, it's yeah. sort of an interesting period. No, absolutely. But at the same time, Incredibles comes out in November of 2004. Another hit. But now, just one film left. But Eisner again, guys, this will all work out. Yeah, after all, we have the rights to make sequels based on the seven Pixar movies we own outright, which again, Toy Story, Toy Story 2, A Bug's Life, Monsters, Inc., Finding Nemo, The Incredibles, and the soon-to-be-released Cars 2. And it's during this time that very, very, very quietly... Disney begins to reach out to folks because they're, they're just beginning to entertain the ideas. Well, all right, if we start making Pixar films on our own, what would the story for Toy Story 3 be? And, and now, folks, uh, we get to bring in our special guests. Bob Hildenberg, say hello from your car. Uh, yes, I am in my car. We're Zooming here. I am not Zooming, but we are over the Internet. Okay. Well, yes. Hello, hello to I, all the uh, Disney, Pixar people, folks, <laughs> men, okay. women, and children. Now, uh, now, Bob, you have such a fascinating history that you and your writing partner, Rob Muir, you started yes. out as uh, improv vets. You, you work with Second City LA and you, you work with the Groundlings. But as a lot of people do who, you know, work in improv and work stand-up, they eventually go into writing. So how is it? that you were selected to be among that group of writers that got to come in to pitch Toy well, Story we 3. Had, we had a couple of other sales in town. We didn't have any mm. films made yet, but we, mm. our agent was really smart, and he had us write a very broad comedy that would not get made, he was convinced, but it would open doors for us as mm. comedic writers, and that happened early on. And we ended up selling a project that could get made that was called small world to paramount. And so we mm -hmm. kind of had the energy of that. We sold another one called scared guys, which is still in development mm -hmm. at Sony right now with uh, Adam Sandler's company. But we had a reputation that we were good. We could pitch well, we could deliver the drafts. Mm -hmm. So they had us in they, and we really didn't know that much about, as I think I've, I've talked about before in the past, we didn't know that much about animation, the mm -hmm. world of the animated feature world. Mm -hmm. So when we got the call to come in to Circle 7, as it turns out, the mm -hmm. big, beautiful building in, uh, in Glendale, where mm -hmm. Disney owns most of the entire zip code of Glendale and Burbank, mm -hmm. we, uh, that's when we went in and we met. And uh, for our, our first, that, well, actually, we had met with Andrew. We want me to jump and tell the story previous to that. We met with Andrew. Yeah. And just to clarify here now, Andrew Milstein at this point had just been in charge of Feature Animation Florida, which I want to say this is in the same window that that got closed down. So Andrew's kind of a free agent, but, you know, Disney respects who he is, so they brought him in to sort of handle this initial, these pitch sessions for, for Toy Story 3, right? Yes, I believe he was even flying in for mm. the meetings and still had his home in Florida at the time. That's how closely okay. they're aligned. Mm -hmm. 
So we did get the call. Our agent said, look, they want to hear they're, they're making sequels to, uh, and they say Disney to us. We, we know that Disney, that there's a Pixar, but we just weren't in that world. and didn't really understand that there was any kind of friction. We didn't know the story. All we knew was that Disney was doing uh, sequels to Monsters, Inc. and Nemo. So we came in and had an initial meeting with them and they told us kind of what they were doing, that they were looking to do these sequels. And they said, you have a preference of these two. And we said, well, we would, we gravitated to Monsters, Inc. because we come from our, our background in, in comedy and improv where you're, you know, a buddy comedy is m much more um, uh, desirable for us. So we went away, I don't know what period of time, came back and pitched them our Monsters, Inc. story. So we've come okay, up with then, this uh, idea. Just, just a sec here. I, I, I want to make sure that we get the chronology here right. Because, again, you, you sat down with Andrew. You pitched the Toy Story 3 idea. Nothing comes of that meaning. But yeah, that was well. a, that's a murky period. That was, mm -hmm. that was pre-Circle 7. We were meeting somewhere. Mm -hmm. I believe it was in the uh, Frank G. Wells building on the Disney lot. Okay. And my memory is that they were trying to come up with ideas for direct to video. This was when they were going to do direct to DVD or video, mm -hmm. whichever it was then of toy story three. So I think, I think they had the bill Steinkellner and I forget his wife's Sherry Steinkellner. Yep. I think yep. they had their draft and I think, I believe they were looking for a rewrite on that. If I'm not mistaken, because I do remember okay. that we've, we read it. I remember things happening in a pool at the grandparents' mm -hmm. house. And so I remember pitching that. So, he, Andrew liked us enough in that meeting that he had mm -hmm. us back then, probably six months to a year later. Which brings us to March of 2005. So Disney right. officially starts Circle 7 at this point. Now, the idea is to recruit top talent to produce sequels to Toy Story, Monsters, Inc., Finding Nemo. Uh, original battle plan here is Circle 7 is to produce one new animated film per year on a budget of just under $100 million. And the supposedly first film out of the gate is going to be Toy Story 3, which is going to supposed to arrive uh, spring of 2008, just three years in the future. But you guys get offered the opportunity to pitch the Monsters, Inc. sequel. Right. Please tell the story about this meeting with Andrew and his reaction to your pitch. Well, it was great. Well, first of all, it was so much fun to walk into this gigantic building. It looks very nondescript on the outside. Inside, it's just explodes with with uh, it's just a you know they had all the toy story uh visual development stuff already going up because they were in pre-production on and waiting for the draft to come in on toy story 3 so they were hiring artists and, and different people and and we came in then to pitch like i said we were coming back for the second time now to actually pitch monsters inc so allison segan who was also a uh, top executive there and andrew were and we began to pitch our take on monsters inc too and we were really flying f through it, and, and we, we were probably about a third of the way through, and Andrew just, and we've never had this happen, and Andrew stops, stops us. He said, hang on just a sec, guys. He said, I want to say something. I've never done this before. This is the best pitch I've ever heard. Okay, keep going. <laughs> so at that wow. point, you know, when you're pitching, you're going, wow, you talk about one on the hook. You know, it felt so good, but I have to thank him. You know, he, he really knew how to encourage us, and, and from day one, and, and we finished the entire pitch, which was very close to the draft that we've ended up having and um, really wanted that job. If I could interrupt for a second here, because in Anytime. town, the uh, Monsters, Inc. to Monsters and Scaradise screenplay it is infamous. You know, a lot of people talk about it as being one of the best screenplays never produced. In fact, Dick Cook, the head of Walt Disney Studio at the time, actually talked about how this was one of the best screenplays he ever read. Can you talk a little bit about the script itself, the story that you and, and, and Rob were looking to tell? Sure. Yeah. I mean, it was a, it's a body picture, but it was, it was in line with following the next logical step of where Monsters Inc. we thought would go. And that would be that in the script we had where, where the B story was that Mike is getting married Mm -hmm. and they take some time off while his family are in town, and they go, it's Boo's birthday, and they want to go and mm -hmm. say happy birthday to Boo because they know time is running out on her. You know, mm -hmm. Sully's a little melancholy about that. And so they go in, and without giving everything away, they do. Mm -hmm. They end up going in. It's not Boo's bedroom. She's moved, and they're stuck in the human world, and they have to find Boo so they can go through her door to get back to Monstropolis, Monstropolis, Mon yeah, mm -hmm. 
uh, and get back. And, and that's where we have our fish out of water. So we have our two characters, fish out of water. They have to get back. Sully really wants to find Boo because he wants to find Boo. And he, he you know, he's, he's scared he can't get back, but that's his motivation. And Mike says he's got to get back and get married because he's... Well, yeah, uh, that's, we, we, that's- the beauty of the, the script is you've got that ticking clock of he's got to get back to the, the ceremony so he can marry Celia. I, I want to Celia. Say. Yeah. yeah. Yes. Okay. Yes. Mm-hmm. Jennifer Tilly. Drew, when you were reading the script, did you catch the Donald Trump reference? No. <laughs> <laughs> yes. With flank bottom. Yes. <laughs> yes. Well, the, the, he's a complication. He's not necessarily a villain, but the, there's a throwaway when, in the moment when they introduce him because he drives up in that limousine and he gets out. And what? How did you describe him? Uh, I can't it, remember the exact description, but I know that it was something to the effect of he had the ego of, you know, but not the... Uh, I forget. It was it was a Donald. We used we literally said though a Donald Trump type who is has the ego of something and but you know cannot deliver on the good whatever it was. It was it was very. Uh, we're, we were foreshadowing something and yes, not really knowing we what we were there doing. There we go. But <laughs> the ending of this thing is as strong, if not stronger, than the original Monsters Inc. I remember reading it the first time myself, and it was just you know tears going down my cheek because it was so beautifully done. I appreciate that, you know, and I will, I won't argue that point because I I just did, I reread it over the last couple of days and I actually was teary eyed knowing what was coming and mm-hmm. I would completely forgotten the last line, which I'm not going to say what that he says to Mike mm-hmm. at the end. And, um, and I, yeah, that it, it is emotional. These characters that they created are so amazing. And that was why we were so excited. You know, I think I explained to you the aspect of doing sequels is like, you know, it's like, like a sitcom. You want to see those characters every week or, or see them continued some way. And I think mm-hmm. the industry's kind of bared out that sequels are something that audiences love to see. We wouldn't have Iron Man 19 if it weren't for that. <laughs> okay. One of the things I'd love for you to clarify at this moment, people in the industry who talk about Circle 7 and, and you know, the joke name was Picks Aren't. That, right. There was this bunch of hacks that they pulled together that were going to make sequels. And there were some people who suggested that the whole studio was kind of a, a negotiating ploy. And can you talk about how that really wasn't the case? Because Drew, you've been in and out of uh, Disney feature animation, the Roy E. Disney building dozens of times. So you know how kind of elaborate they can decorate the individual pods that films yeah. are being worked well, on. Well, I, I used to go to Circle 7 for lunch when I was working at DC3, so I'm trying to figure out where this was over at Circle 7. Oh, oh where the what, what, where yeah, what where, part where, was? Where the production was, because, you know, that's like the ABC, ABC 7. Yes. It's for, right across the street. If you, uh, we could probably stand in the parking lot and look right oh, at the sign right big, there. Oh, okay, I, I know exactly the building you're talking about. I think it's yeah. a two-story building, yeah. Yep. It's a huge building, and it has like a giant kind of a loft upstairs, giant big staircase goes up. And okay. It's cool. older, but they, yeah, but it's something you can really dress up, especially with the artists, you know, and the people they have. I guess you and Rob's offices were at the very end of the building. So you got walk, to walk through the whole building virtually every day can can you describe the toy story three pod with sure yeah well well i think the the entire place it had offices on the outside so everything Mm -hmm. in the middle were all the artists and all Mm -hmm. of at at cubicles Mm -hmm. but they had the just like they they do as drew you were saying you know they dress up these these places and they look fantastic and it wasn't just a a pod it was Mm -hmm. the entire place was it was toy story three it was from the moment you walk in, everything was Toy Story 3. The, the visual development and just the, the artwork, mm-hmm. um, I mean, just boards everywhere. And it's something that they've done since Walt's days. If you immerse yourself in that world that mm-hmm. you're coming to work in and, and create these characters. And that was really impressive to us. And, mm-hmm. you know, we were just the Monsters, Inc. guys going to the back of the building and, and writing our script well, uh, for a while. You turn in your first draft, everyone kind of loses their mind, and then you get tapped to work on Toy Story 3, which I, I, I want to say that's the first draft was by Jim Hertzfeld of Meet yes. the Parents fame? Yes, from Meet the Parents, uh, yes. Mm-hmm. Jim's a nice, really nice guy. Yes, he was writing the first draft, and they were anxiously awaiting it. They, they had a few pages, I think, that they were working off of, so they were already animating and storyboarding, I should say, and they were getting mm-hmm. things up on animatics. Animatics were fairly new at that point. 
um, at least at, at the computer ones. And then, yeah, what was happening is we didn't hand in the entire Monsters, Inc. We handed in, I think, the first 40, 50 pages, mm-hmm. and they really flipped over it. They were so excited because they didn't want to let us go through the whole, write the whole thing and then hand it in and say, wait, what? Mm-hmm. <laughs> so they, that's where they wanted to kind of check in periodically. But at that point, we're just about to receive the draft from uh, the, the Hertzfeld draft, and they, and they did, and it was really long. And I don't know if he didn't have time to rewrite it or if they didn't want it. I don't know the story behind it, but they came to us. Mm-hmm. And they said, look, we just had this, I, I, I say 150 pages, I don't remember. It could have been 160, it could have been 140. It was just too long, and we needed to go through it. So they took us off of Monster Zinc and they said, we want you just to dedicate yourselves to this for the next four to five weeks. We need it as quickly as you can do it. So we were basically turning out pages and mm-hmm. we started rewriting so they could use them. And they were you know, ravenously outside waiting for pages to come through, at least for the opening that we did so they could get started on that because they were behind. At the same time, then we, we ended up finishing the draft and we handed it in. And, you know, you never know when you hand in a draft if it's good or not. And we show up the next day and Brad Raymond, the director, meets us at the door and just engulfs us both in a hug. He said, you saved us. This is fantastic. And then Roy Conley comes up and Roy, same thing, just hugged us and said, this is amazing, guys. We're off and running now. Roy, you know, who went on to, mm-hmm. he had done Treasure Planet and then he went on to do um, winning Academy Award, I think. Was it Big Hero 6, I think, he won the Academy Award for? I don't know. Anyway, he's a terrific – he's still at Mm -hmm. Disney, I'm sure. Mm -hmm. Um, A very nice guy, very tall. Um, (laughs) So we were thrilled, and they just put it – they rolled it right into production. And the big thing they wanted to do, they wanted to lock down Tom Hanks. I do remember Mm -hmm. that. Do you want me to roll into that part yet? Well, let's save that. Well, can I ask what the the plot was of of the Hertzfeld draft and then what yours was? Yeah, I, I will be honest that I'm a little murky on what was ours, what was his, because we kind of, you know, just dove in so quickly. But it was the the Woody uh, Buzz malfunctioning going to Japan and being repaired. Right. And how to get in there. Right. That whole idea. We massaged a lot of the areas uh, in the opening, in the beginning, and obviously condensed, because I think we handed in a hundred and maybe 510 page script condensed a lot of the the second act we did do the the daycare center that was all part of it and we also worked a lot on the characters uh, that were we didn't do the whole you know um kind of land of the lost toys aspect of it that was in that draft where they were all in cages i don't know if you've seen the artwork for that the toys that were uh, at that point that had been returned as well for different things we did a few of them but it wasn't as big a part of the story there was a daycare in this version yes what, wow yes. it was it it was it was in the, yeah a lot of people don't realize that it well, was I sound like donald well, trump a lot also, of people don't realize that. it was a huge yeah. script it was a huge <laughs> it was huge it was huge. The top of the thing. yeah no it was it what it, it took place in a, the, the daycare center and we had a lot of fun with that too because they had to uh, Woody and the gang had to get up through an elevator, navigate their way to get up to like the 60th floor where the daycare was, which was bizarre, but it was that we researched and that's where these daycares were uh, or are in Japan because, you know, the lack of space. But yeah, we had a lot. We had the, the I mean, for me, some of the funnier scenes, it was, uh, you know, the, the kids playing. And then there is some viz dev to that. There's some, that's where you see Mr. Uh, is it Mr. Potato Head holding um, uh, ham and he's dressed up, the kids had dressed them up to get in, in a, in a veil and, and a wedding dress right, and in a yeah. tuxedo, getting them married. It's just, yeah, really fun. We had a lot of fun with well, that, but they had to escape then. Can you talk about the take that you and Rob had for the opening, which also yes. would be kind of familiar? Yes. We thought it would be really fun to be in, in Toy Story was it one or two when, when they're, when they're showing both of them, I think they show Andy playing with the toys mm-hmm. and, you know, we thought it would be nice to be inside of Andy's head because kids are, you know, have this, these amazing imaginations. Let's actually see what, you know, when we see him clanking around and, and jumping around with the toys, let's see him actually inside of his head. And that's when we dipped inside of, you know, we opened the movie inside a really big set piece, an action set piece of, of uh, Woody's a, a, a real cop 
and and Ham is a uh, I forget what he's he's the bandit and he's kidnapped that uh, 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 can't Ham not Ham um, Mr. Potato it's kidnapped anyway it's a big action sequence with helicopters and everything and then uh, it ends with Andy lunch and we go poof out of this big set piece. And his mom is there, and we see that he's actually holding the toys that he's just been on this elaborate set piece. So they loved it so much, and they wanted to get to it that they ended up hiring, and I forget his name. I should have had that for you. One of the biggest storyboard artists in town at the time who just finished doing Spider-Man. So they hired him to do the opening, and he completely boarded, storyboarded this really great action sequence. And they were off to running, off and running on that. It wasn't Peter Ramsey, was it? Well, that sounds familiar, actually. Okay. <laughs> it, it may have been. Okay. It may have been. Okay. Do you know who he is? Yeah, he was a, a big storyboard artist. He worked with, you know, he did Dracula and this. I know he did one of the Spider-Mans and he ended up directing, you know, co-directing Spider-Man yeah. into the Spider-Verse. But he was, yeah. he was the storyboard guy for a real... Yes, yeah. No, he, yeah. He, he, got a, he got a big check. I mean, you know, they yeah. were... That's the thing. Circle Seven was not afraid to throw some money around when they needed to. They they did not want to be embarrassed by this. Bob, please talk about the fact that you're in a building with Disney vets, uh, you know, Pixar vets, uh, uh, guys, you know, uh, guys like Rick Sluter. I mean, you know, I mean, yeah. top, top, yes. top talent. Uh, our head of story, Robert Lentz, was one of the heads of story on the original Toy Story. Uh, the building was filled with people who had won Academy Awards for Beauty and the Beast and films like that. It was it was pretty uh, incredible, frankly. And I think I even um, brought up somewhere that it was a really sad time when Joe Ramp died, tragically, but up in the, going to the Bay Area. And mm-hmm. his brother came down who worked for Pixar, and he was a Jerome, really good friend yeah. with Robert Lentz and some of the other guys. And that's kind of the world that, that was created there. People think, thought it was this us, aver- us versus them, but it wasn't. It was, you know, it's artists are artists, and they have jobs, and they need to, you know, and mortgages and need to work, and sometimes they'll be here and there. So, yeah, we used to see guys from Pixar coming in all the time. And, and at first we thought, hey, are they just snooping around? But no, that's the artist community. They are hanging out with their friends and having lunch, getting a free lunch. Mm. So, uh, <laughs> yeah, there were a lot of people from uh, – people would be surprised if they saw the amount of people from Pixar that were actually working, consulting, were around these projects. And, and they wanted them to succeed as well, I think, at a certain level. If, they, if we were going to take their babies, I think they felt like at least they wanted them to succeed, at, at, us to succeed at some level. Okay. Well, now, especially when it comes to Monsters, Inc. 2, there's a, a strong buzz about this project. And the buzz got so strong, you guys got a call from the then head of Disney, Michael Eisner, right? Who wanted you to come to the lot yeah, and well, pitch a story? Actually, you can just flip back to when it was way before that. It's when we first, uh, when Andrew Milstein and and, um, Allison Segan wanted to to hire us, Mm -hmm. we then kind of banged out the story and got it a little more detailed. And before we went to script, Mm -hmm. they wanted to go. And this is the way that Eisner worked. He was pretty hands-on creatively, which I really never knew until I I seen some documentaries on him subsequently. But he really was uh, involved creatively. So we went to his office. So it was Andrew Milstein and, and Allison Segan. I think they're maybe their you know assistants and, and Rob and I. And um, I tell the story quickly that Rob and I were big, big and were and still are big Disneyland fans. I grew up in Southern California, so I've been going there my whole life. And we had our annual passes with us, and we got our kids' annual passes and our wives' annual passes, and we planned to do this to break the ice. And we walk into Eisner's office, and we stand up. And much to the horror of Allison and Andrew, who were thinking, oh, what are these crazy writers doing? We throw our, our annual passes down and go to Michael Eisner. Look, we pay a lot of money for these passes, and we, we have a question. Why don't you have the fast pass on uh, Pirates of the Caribbean? It's the only ride there that doesn't have one. And we thought he'd just laugh it off. But he took it very – he laughed and said, you know what? I have an answer for that, guys. And he told, went on to tell us how they tracked people and, you know, whatever the deal behind it was. But for us, it was like, wow, that really humanized him that he would be, you know, in the, in the weeds that much on, you know, knowing how, why the fast pass isn't on pirates. And we went on to pitch and uh, he was great. Loved the story. And as we were leaving, I had to use the restroom. I said, can I use the restroom? Do you have one? And he said, oh, use mine right here. It's my private restroom. He said, I want you to use this one instead of the one down the hall because I've 
um, wallpapered the entire bathroom's ceiling, floor to ceiling, with reviews, uh, bad reviews uh, from Hollywood, all uh, all over the walls. So I sure enough, I go in there, and it's just you know, Variety, Eisner sucks. This everything you can imagine, every review ever written. So he had a good sense of humor. I later found out that we were his last uh, official creative meeting. He leaves September 2005, right? Yeah, so yep. somewhere in that window. Yeah. So we're uh, we're launched then. Yeah. So we're in the middle of writing Monsters Inc. at that point, right? But in uh, the Iger book, Ride of My Life, Drew, isn't there a story in there where literally after the board gives Iger the job, I think he calls his wife, he calls his dad. And who's the next call to? I am, I do not remember this story, Jim. Partially because that book is the most boring book I've ever seen. <laughs> <laughs> All <laughs> right. Well, well story, wait, Jim, because okay, I wait, let me spoil the surprise for you. Save you, you know, they get over yeah, there. Yeah, please. Steve Jobs. He, he actually calls Steve Jobs after he calls his wife and his dad. And supposedly, you know, to the effect of, I've just got the job, the board's hired me, and I'm hoping that when Michael leaves, you and I can talk and things, you know, we, we can explore some stuff. So that to me is fascinating that here's Circle 7 gearing up. And again, remember, we've got that locked in release date, spring of 2008 for Toy Story 3, and here's... Iger talking with Jobs already before things really get underway. Well, once he made the switch, though, because we, I, I don't know if you want me to jump ahead, but while we were working on Monsters, Inc., mm-hmm. and they were, uh, they wanted to bring he, he and Dick Cook up to speed on everything once he took over, he would mm-hmm. come over and visit, and we would pitch him stories, and he would read the, the read pages and uh, had notes. I remember in particular one note he had, you know, from the script that there's the, uh, the uh, monster Island mm-hmm. where they have the, that everybody's having meetings and different things. And he came up with the idea of the breakout sessions. He thought that would be a funny idea. And we put that in. It was a funny idea. Cause that remember at the time when people were always, they go away to these corporate meetings mm-hmm. and he knew more about that than we would ever know corporate meetings, but really very, very smart, nice. And they were very invested. I mean, either they're really good actors or they weren't sure they were going to pull this deal off. I think there was a p- parallel track going, you know, make the best possible effort on what Circle 7 is doing, but at the same time, explore whether or not we can have a deal with, with Pixar. And then, of course, January right. 2006, we, we get the announcement that Pixar Animation uh, Studio Disney has acquired it for $7.4 billion and Lasseter is now the Ubermeister of all animation at Disney, you know, Pixar, Disney Tune, you know, the the works and including Circle 7. So what was it like to be in the building and get that news? Well, I, 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 we weren't in the building, but we did get the news, and, and just as a horrific way. I mean, mm-hmm. I say that uh, not to be melodramatic, but it's a pretty big deal when you're, you know, we, we were standing just weeks before that looking out over a parking lot that they were leveling and, and building an entire uh, soundstage that was going to be known as the Monsters, Inc. 2 soundstage that they were going to be doing. They are building a theater in there, uh, you know, uh, editing facilities, a whole lot of things. Right out of our outside of our window, so we thought, wow, we just, you know, we are in the middle of something really huge. So we showed up to work on this particular day. We walked through the big front doors. Okay, oh, go ahead. (laughs) Again, so this gets announced in January, and you guys, work continues for another couple of months. It isn't till May twenty sixth that the boom gets lowered, right? Yeah, I think what and what was happening during that time, they were trying to figure it out. There were, mm-hmm. as you can imagine, and and Drew, you would know, having worked around the, in these in, in the industry, that you know the gossiping of mm-hmm. what's going to happen. I mean, there were so many varying conversations going on of, of what's going to happen to us. But the worst case scenario that everybody was kind of landing on was Pixar guys will come down. They may want to take over or, you know, be the boss bosses, <laughs> but that's still going to be green. It's great. Nobody would throw this out. It would be crazy to throw all this work out, these great ideas, you know, Toy Story 3, it would be crazy. Why don't we just come in and, and, and work together? That was our worst case scenario. Well, but, more to the point, the company had plowed millions upon millions of dollars already into this facility and, you know, the talent and just the stuff that had been done to date. So, they were going to back the truck up to Tom Hanks and, and uh, Tim mm-hmm. Allen's house. Yeah, they, they, had, they actually had a cashier's check 
that they were going to attach to the script and hand deliver it to Tom when they were, when they were ready. And it was a big number. I don't remember it. I don't remember if it was 10 million, you know, 10 million back then seems about right. That would be a gigantic check, (laughs) but it was a lot of money. It was basically an offer. He wouldn't be able to refuse. By the way, the guy who did the scratch dialogue for the, uh, on, uh, who did Tom Hanks, he, I don't know, you may, may know who he is. Mm-hmm. Phenomenal. Most, you wouldn't even know the difference. Even if they didn't get him, you wouldn't know. It was, am- he was amazing. Well, I mean, they maybe talk, not the they, actor. Had they talked to, to, to John Goodman and, and uh, you know, was that? I don't, well, no, 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 Bob, tell the story about meeting with Billy Crystal. Oh, you don't want me to? Why don't, you want me to segue right into this story though about coming in a, and and learning about Circle Seven? Well, yeah, but, but uh, okay. Because this yeah. one came because that one came later. The actual okay. the Billy Crystal came later. Yeah. Okay. I'll so just it's jump the, into. It's the morning of May twenty sixth, and 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 you and Rob show up late, right? Yeah, we you know we're writers. We show up a little later. We we had a good commute, so it was probably ten ten thirty. I'm thinking, and we walk we walk open the doors, and usually we're greeted by you know just bot, you know what it's like in a, in a production like this. People moving around everywhere, and and nothing. Ghost town. No assistance. No one was there. The only human being there was a security guard, who we had to kind of seek out. And to ask him what's going on. I mean, literally, there were 200 people in the building every day, and now there were zero. And he said, uh, I don't know. All I know is they, all, they got a call, and they were all asked to come over to Soundstage, whatever it was, at Disney, at the main, on the main lot. That's all I know. And I went, wow, this is really freaky. And we walked back, and we went to our office. And right outside of our offices were, were you, what used to be empty cubicles. But the, the whole place was filling up, so it wasn't odd that this one would now have, uh, have somebody there. didn't have somebody, but it had his uh, still steaming cup of coffee and uh, a piece of luggage with a, a – Bra- I think the, the, the bag tag was from Brazil – so somebody we later found out who had moved out here and was coming their first day to work to work on this project, an animator. I think it was in the, in the computer aspect of it. And uh, anyway, so we're sitting around waiting nervously, and suddenly here comes Rick Sluter pounding down the hallway. We go, hey, hey, Rick, what's going on? He goes, that's it. We're done. We go, what do you mean? What's done? He said, they just cut us out. They were, it's, it's gone. It's over. And he'd been through this before on different companies, so he knows when it's over, it's over. He's been, you know, he was prepping us for that. He said, I'll be in the party pit (laughs) drinking. We had like a little bar set up, a party pit. And he just marched right into it and started hammering booze. That's how I feel. We were not far behind. Jim, I just got to go to the party pit. You'll find me there drinking away (laughs) my sorrows. Yeah, he didn't have – and he wasn't surprised at all. He's a Canadian hockey player. He's been through a lot. He was on the team for Feature Animation Florida, and that studio got shut down. So it's the equivalent. Well, of- he did. Um, what's that? I'm just I'm blanking on the one with the Hawaiian. Um, no, Lilo uh, and Stitch. Yeah, I mean, Lilo but, and Stitch. Yeah, he he, he, he created. The, yeah, he was the, he was art director on Lilo and Stitch. Uh, yeah, no, so he moved his family out here. That his uh, wife didn't want to move out here. He talked her into it. She was very suspect about this one, but he swore to her this was going to be a, a secure move. Mm. And he ended up going back to Florida not not that long after. Jesus but Lord. yeah, that was a big blow. So what, then we found out what happened. So what, what happened was that, that John Lasseter gathered them all on stage, and he and and um, oh help me with the uh, his Ed Catmull Ed Catmull Ed Catmull yeah. yeah and Ed Catmull apparently wasn't he, they, he they were talking about Disney and and Disney animation and nobody apparently had brought up Circle Seven and finally one of the Circle Seven guys you know with this. You're talking hundreds of people there that are gathered on the soundstage. He said, what are you doing with Circle 7? And Catmull goes, oh, yeah, we're shutting that down. And everybody just kind Whoa. of, you know, oh. we're told they just collapsed. You know, people are trying to hold each other up. And Lasseter, to his credit, understood artists a little more and said, well, 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 you know, that doesn't mean everybody's going to lose a job. We're not exactly sure how we're going to integrate and do it. He tried to soften it a little bit, but the, mm-hmm. the, uh, the rug had already been pulled out from everybody and that's when they stumbled back. And as you know, Jim, you were even telling, you know better than I how they were able to take and 
and uh, integrate so many people from yeah, Circle that's 7. It. Supposedly, out of the 168 people who worked at Circle 7, 136 of them uh, wound up being absorbed by Walt Disney Animation Studios and then went on to work on Bolt and Tangled and wreck and Ralph. But on the other hand, yes. Circle 7 quickly became a ghost town. And, and can, can you... Talk about wandering through you and Rob, I guess, as you were packing up the office, wandering. Sort of, I, I, I also want to just make sure that we understand that Ed Catmullet turned out to be a, a really nice guy and a mensch because mm-hmm. he, mm-hmm. he came over a few days later and gathered everybody in Circle 7 and apologized for being so abrupt. And he just talked about how everybody was – they were going to try to take care of everybody. And, you know, it was a, it was a much better way than the – we're just, you know – the firing squad approach. But yeah, so when everyone was gone, Rob and I would still come back to the office. So our, our, our car keys were, and they, and they were, we were so far in the back, we could take a side door to get in. Yeah, and for us, just, just a, like a personal moment, we were, we were going through, we were looking and there was a, in the conference room, there was a big folder and it had been opened up and they were talking and all the projects were listed. And then they were said Toy, Toy Story 3 and they had us as writers. And then it said Toy Story 4 and it had a list of writers and then it had us circled. And it said to negotiate with agent. And it was like, oh boy. So no, I know we did. We have Monsters Inc. We had Toy Story 3 and Toy Story 4. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, I mean, you know, I, it's uh, who knows, but it was, you know, it was fun while it lasted. There's this myth about how, you know, the, the circus. Circle Seven, you know, that people are ashamed to have worked there, or you know, that's and it's just not the case. I mean, Andrew went on no. to be the head of uh, president, was it? Of, of yeah, Disney president. Of, uh, yep. And president of Walt I, Disney yeah. In fact, I, what was it? Just last year, again, Disney they made him the co-president of Blue Sky because, again, it's you know that's a priority project for them right now about figuring yeah. out how Blue he Sky is, fits he in. Is, Salt of the earth, greatest guy, always mm-hmm. been good to us. We've many times through the years have had lunch with mm-hmm. Andrew on the lot and just a great guy. And a lot of people, yeah, you landed on their feet and did really well there. I mean, you know, the reputation, you know, was not deserved. That's for sure. Cause it oh, was no, a no. very I, talented group of people. Absolutely. But more to the point, I mean, you all can still continue to work together. I mean, think about it under John Lasseter's guidance, Tom Bradley, the, the original proposed director of Toy Story 3, he directs uh, The Great Trevor Rescue for Disney Toon yeah, Studios. Yeah, Brad, yeah Brad, Brad Raymond, yeah. Yeah, and by the way, features a script written by you and Rob. So Yes, but, it, yes, but again, you, you actually, don't you have like a long-time connection to Lasseter? Or? Yes, I actually went to high school with John. We went to Whittier High School, which has a great connection to the, the industry and in that it's the high school from Back to the Future. Every scene, indoors and outdoors, they did not use sets. They used my alma mater, Whittier High School, Whittier Union Holy High School. Cow, I did yeah. not know a that. Be- beautiful school built in the early 1900s. And I watched that movie just to say, I stood right there. My locker was there, you know. <laughs> um, you know, I had my okay. first kiss over there. But they, yeah, John and I, and uh, I, I actually, he was a, we were a year apart, but John's uh, twin sister, Joanna, mm-hmm. and I were very good friends because she dated my best friend. And so I saw her all the time. And, you know, yeah, it was just, it was so, uh, so odd to make that full circle connection back to, mm-hmm. you know, but there was John Lasseter's first hug. <laughs> no, we, we, we can't go there. Uh-huh. Yeah, we, oh, you, can. you can. Bro. You guys can go there. Okay. All hey. right. Well, anyway. Yeah, I will say all that stuff. All that stuff is, uh, yeah. It's. I, I don't know. I don't even. As a matter of fact, I was thinking about John, and I was thinking about. I wonder if he ever read Monsters Inc. I, I think he. I, I would. I don't. I'm I, sure I he no did. Idea. I'm sure well, he did. That's a weird well, thing. It had still has this legend in the industry. And in fact, which in a weird sort of way brings us now to Monsters at Work, which is the animated series that's based on the original Monsters, Inc. from 2001 that will debut on Disney Plus next year. And don't you also have a relationship with Bob's Ganaway? The, the, yeah, Bob's uh, Ganaway, yeah. Yeah, he was, uh, when we were doing Tinkerbell and the Great Fairy Rescue, mm-hmm. he was, they were just ramping up, um, I believe he was doing car... Was he doing Cars 3 or – I think he was doing Cars 3. Was it – or, or the Flames were, movie? 
maybe the planes. Yeah, maybe it was okay. the planes. Yeah, it was the planes because he was. They were flying places. That's right. They okay. were going off and flying in planes in mm. the Midwest somewhere. I remember mm. that. Yeah, and he was very, you know, and we got to peek in, and everybody kind of helps everybody with little work here and mm. there. And yeah, he's a really nice guy. Okay, very but- clever. Very nice guy. In this world now, where a Netflix is doing six animated new animated features a year, that that's their plan for yeah. two thousand one. Um, that used to take up a decade and a half in the old days. Yeah. <laughs> six animated <laughs> features for for a studio, right? Wow. <laughs> like every you three know, years. And and Drew, you know, you and I have talked about the whole troll hunter situation where Netflix, what would there have been the three troll hunter series so far? And mm-hmm. now they're going to end with the feature. Is that the plan for Guillermo? Um, yeah. Next year. If monsters, I like and, it. <laughs> you know, monsters at work is a hit for Disney plus. Maybe then again, with the notion of if, if it comes time to wrap up the series or, you know, that, that they want to build on success, maybe it's time for Disney to, to dust off the script for Monsters Inc. 2, Monsters and Scaradise, and then do that as a, an animated feature for Disney Plus. I mean, I, it I, seems like a no brainer. Yeah, it would, it's a turnkey operation. It's ready yeah. to roll. Just mm-hmm. got to, you know, put the keys in and drive her. She's ready to go. I mean, it's a dream of ours. I honestly, it's, that's the biggest disappointment. I I don't say disappointment, but it's, it's, it's an emptiness you have when you have, we have a lot, we've written 41 screenplays for studios. There are not all of them are made. Not many do. And it's hard to get a script made, but that's the one that hangs out. That is, that's a really big one for us because it crosses into so many territories with so many people and resonated with mm-hmm. everybody. And, and people do know, it. I mean, it has not that many people have read it. You know, it's a very small select group. Let's be clear. I, I haven't sent it out to a lot of people and you got to mm-hmm. look at it a yeah. few years ago. Just recently, Bob, didn't you have a pro- another project that was years old that, that now suddenly is, is revived or has some heat and, and has some interest? Yes. Yeah. Yes, yes, something really old. Yeah, it can happen. I mean, there are, you know, Hollywood is filled with those stories. I think what makes this different is the time, enough time has gone by now, especially that in the industry, there isn't, you know, I don't think there's any kind of bad blood. Everybody, a lot of people have gone different ways. The Pixar people, there is that nucleus, it's smaller. I think it probably would have been difficult for them at the time if I put myself in their shoes when they were the rock stars, they were the Beatles, they were, you know, whoever. And, and uh, yeah, and, and it was difficult. What was hard was when we showed up in the theater, if you want me to jump ahead, and we saw Toy Story 3, mm-hmm. was when the, the opening of Toy Story 3 came out, and we were a little surprised that they had a very similar opening because we'd always been told, no, they threw your script away, they don't want to read it. We said, they, they can, you know, just mm-hmm. give us credit, and, and we'd love to, you know, but. Yeah, there's that same inside of Andy's head, as I recall. I've only seen it once. It was really hard for me to watch, frankly. Mm. Well, it, aren't, aren't they inside of his head? And it's a different time frame. It's the cowboy era. I know that. Yeah, uh, yeah. They each sort Old of West. have a different fantasy sequence that opens them. Except mm-hmm. for Toy Story Four, it does not. But did you see Monsters University? And what did you think of that? Yes, I saw it. Um, I, yeah, I just, you know, I think because I have something that I can put it up against that's so, it fits so nicely into the world of Monsters, Inc. 1 and 2. Yeah. That it, that, that, that it's, it's impossible for me to, to not just look at it and, and constantly think, geez, we just had this, you know, and then they could have, you know, played around with this stuff. But, you know, oh. the good thing about it is, because there's some really funny stuff in there, and it's beautifully animated. The, mm-hmm. the, great, the great thing is that it wasn't a sequel, <clears throat> if you're looking at it from the perspective of could this possibly ever get made again, mm-hmm. it, because it was a prequel, and, and, you know, it's now, it's set up. And, and, mm-hmm. and Jim, I think we've talked about that, 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 you know, the idea that it's now set up, you could drop it right in, and it doesn't matter that it's 20 years it could, or whatever it is, 15, it could, you know, you don't have to make Boo 20, you can make her eight or seven or nine, you know, there's no, yeah, there there aren't any rules anymore. So anyway, yeah, that's just my my little fantasy. Let's indulge in fantasy. Because again, I want (laughs) to see this movie. I want to see it on a big screen where we can finally get back into theaters and, you know, I want to go through a box of Kleenex. But uh, before we close (laughs) here, can you talk about when you, you got to sit down with Billy Crystal and talk about this movie? 
Oh, that was great. Yeah, we went, um, we met with him over at his, uh, I forget the name of his production company now, Beverly Hills, but he wanted to meet with us because he'd read the draft and loved it and he wanted to meet with the writers. But I think, I forget how he got the draft. It wasn't through us and it wasn't through Disney or Pixar, obviously, or anyone, but somehow, you know, he's Billy Crystal and he's Mike Wazowski. He's going to get that draft. But he didn't understand at the time. So in the meeting, and he's so funny. He's just, you know, he's just and, and gracious and, and I just, he's just great. But he was, he didn't realize at the time that it wasn't connected to last year. So he said, he asked us, has, has John read this? And we said, we don't know. <laughs> we don't know. And he goes, Oh, well, what is this? What's the circle? Set? You know, he didn't really just oh. like, you know, we didn't, you know, if you're on the outside of that, you don't really understand. So, um, yeah, it was a huge pat on the back and, you know, I mean, I knew him a little bit from the showbiz softball league days that mm -hmm. we used to play in, but this was much more, uh, you know, memorable meeting of, of Billy Crystal for sure. He had a big Mike Wazowski in his office, big giant plush, you know, not one you get at Toys R Us, but mm -hmm. one that the studio makes for you. This whole story just kind of kills me. I mean, again, I just I think Drew, and anything you want to ask before we close up here, or Drew, yeah. are, you, are you crying? Drew, Drew is tearing up. I see I'm you. crying. It's just <laughs> such an emotional story, both the script and the story of the Circle Seven uh, thing. But yes. yeah, that's a. Uh, it's an insight into a sort of a time, a very chaotic time at Disney, and uh, so yeah, I've, very little has come out about Circle Seven. So I think that's a real great insight. Yeah, it, it's, it really is remarkable. I hear, you know, it's so frustrating for me to read and hear things through the years ago. Really? No, it wasn't this Pixar. It was, it was never, it was ne never, never, never was it direct to DVD. That was, if, if it were, that were a, a year before, or eight months before that. But once they were Circle Seven, feature films, big league, you know, minimum 100 grand. And I'd say I'm guessing at least 150 people were there. What, what was he read? 160 or something like that, Jim? Yeah, yeah 168 supposedly at, at its height. And again, you know, the 136 of them. You know, and, and that's the irony that that you know, again, people you know look at Circle Seven, you know, and and not realizing that 136 of those people then went over to Disney and made all of the movies that you love now, the Tangled, the Frozen's. All right, so this was exactly the team that they had assembled to do this thing. Yes, it was. You know? Yes, it, you're right. It was it was it was Pixar South. It was the A team of people who didn't want to live in the Bay Area, who were from down here, and they. I mean that that's what kept a lot of the guys down here. You know, um, I heard that story a lot guys who worked mm -hmm. at Pixar, but just wanted to live back down here near their families and this opportunity. So oh. yeah, it's, it was a cra it was a crazy time. And, and I, I wished I'd spent, you know, Robert Lentz, the story director, he was really, he's a great guy. He walked around with a video camera and he went to every single person. I wish I, there's somebody we should try to talk to and you can get, mm -hmm. he, he video, he had a video diary saying goodbye to every single human being at circle seven. Wow, I would love to see that. Yep. Okay, that, yep. that's I remember he came in the office one day and he said, oh, "Guys, I'm," and he just told us what he was doing and he was doing it on every. I should. I'm friends with him. I should contact him and ask him about that. that. Would be I'd like to see what my hair looked like then. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> all right. Well, Bob, <laughs> on behalf of Drew, thank you so much for making the time to share this story with us. And again, this is honestly, I, I believe, a really important piece of Disney history, the uh, Disney Pixar history, which as Drew pointed out, really doesn't get talked about, really hasn't been explored. And so that the fact that you sat down with us for our hundredth episode and did this was a, a real treat, not just for us, but for the, the listeners of fine tuning. So thank you for much, so much for making the time today. I'm yeah. thrilled. Ha thank you for having me, you guys. It's a thrill. And I like to, to purge myself of all these memories. They're great <laughs> memories. I mean, it, it was the, probably the, the, one of the greatest times of my life. You know, I had my kids were young and I brought them into the studio and, you know, you get to see Buzz and you know, Woody. Yeah, it was great. And it's amazing. And uh, let's see. Okay. You okay. draw. If you could draw, if you could draw, Jim, you could draw the start. Start boarding the movie right I, now. I'm just the one who thumps the tub. And again, all I want, you know, just <laughs> a, give me monsters at work, and then give me, you know, use that as an excuse to, to give me monsters and scare dice. That's that's all I ask. Listen, Bob, you that's saw how long ask. you saw how long it took him to get his audio to work on Zoom. Having him direct a feature-length animated movie that might be one. <laughs> 
It might yeah, be a pretty white beach, just what I'm saying. Yeah, do, 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 do. Uh, uh, well, you know people, though, Jim. Uh, well, what is the old Jay Leno joke about, you know, the expiration date on a Twinkie? It's like, hey, pal, you should live so long. So it's like, yeah, that's, that's, <laughs> I have to animate this. You know, it, it, it will be into the third century before that happens. But but thanks again, yeah. Bob, for making the time. I'm with and, you. And, you know. Yeah, happy Halloween, everybody. Yeah, thank you All so right. much, and have a great weekend, everybody. Yeah, thank you. Thanks so much, Duval Hindenburg, for coming on the show. And thank you for so much for doing that and sharing all those great stories about Circle 7. So also thanks to all of you who have been listening to, to us yammer for 100 shows. And thanks to Drew to be here to, to correct me when I call Abominable Everest. Oy. <laughs> okay. It's fine, Jim. It's fine. <laughs> well, that's our first 100. And hopefully, you know, as guess we grow, go forward here. Uh, we'll continue to tell the interesting stories or reasonably interesting stories. In the meantime, though, be sure you're paying attention to what Drew is up to with his amazingly excellent Light Diffuse podcast. And again, how close are we to Light the Wick at this point? Uh, Light the Wick is looking like January. Ooh, yeah, yeah, okay. yeah. But so we, we're, oh. we're going to have the Light the Wick in January, but we're also going to do a, a Top Gun miniseries when that comes out. So... Ooh. Okay. Yeah, it's we're gonna we're gonna detour a little bit next year to to certain avenues, but they're always they're always Mission Impossible adjacent, and mm-hmm. they're gonna be really fun. We we t- we did a great, I don't want to spoil what it is, but we did a great John Wick interview this week that is gonna just be mm. awesome. So I'm okay. I'm very very excited about it. And this week on the show, anybody you know? Uh, well, this week gonna... uh, is our. Starting this, the week that this show comes out is our first half of our Michael Giacchino interview, oh, uh, which is really no. great. Yeah, so so that has a lot of and and, and Disney fans and Pixar fans, you're gonna want to hear it because we hmm. we do dip into some things. It's a two parter, but uh, yeah, he gives actually a great story about scoring Space Mountain, Jim, which we will I, um, I will bring up next time. But uh, okay. yeah, so he he's on there, and then uh, on Collider this coming week, my history of Chicken Little will be coming out. Jim, I spe- spoke to the director and producer and got all the stories. So get ready oh, for that for its anniversary. No. Yeah. Did you get the campground stuff? Did you? Yes, get I the... did. Yes, I Ooh. did. Okay. So this might be our next feature is going to be based on this article. But yes. Oh, yes. Okay. No, absolutely. Absolutely. And damn, I'm blanking her name. Holly Hunter. Holly Hunter. Um, Yep. And uh, I forget, I forget who the wolf was, but it was, it was, oh, it was Penn Jillette was the wolf. Penn Jillette. I don't know. I I actually got the interview about this and it was, you know, one of the great heartbreaks of his life that that version didn't go for it. All right. I'm spoiling it. No. Yes. You got to check this out, folks. Holy crap. Yeah. I got got the whole, I got the whole story, Jim. So that'll be, that'll be on Collider sometime this week. Okay. Well, let's look at it, talking more about that on another show, but okay. uh, Speaking of other shows, in addition to Light the Fuse, we also have uh, Disney's with Lentesto. We've got Marvel Us Disney, which we do with Aaron Adams. We also have Looking at Lucasfilm with Dan Z, who, by the way, has his book out now, uh, the one he did with Cole Horton and Pablo Hidalgo, the Star Wars book. Uh, so check that out. So we got Universal Joint with Dustin Fuse. And likewise, I want that with uh, Shelley Vio to lead out the door. If you get over to iTunes and rate and recommend not only Light the Fuse, but the show you listen to right now, Fine Tuning. Uh, if you really, really, really like your, what you heard, uh, head to Bandcamp and subscribe. You can find us on Twitter and Instagram at Jim Hill Media and on Facebook at Jim Hill Media News. Thanks for being here for the 100th episode, folks. And we'll be back with, God help us, the 101st episode very soon.